Hi there everybody, this is Klaatu. Today we're going to do something a little bit different than what I've been doing, which is normally I go through every single command installed on Slackware Linux, but today I'm going to do some listener feedback because I've got some stuff that I need to talk about. So it's, it's actually mostly listener feedback from maybe one person, but that's okay. Uh, it, it sort of nicely corresponded with something that I was going to address anyway, because there was one of those blog posts that made the rounds, as they do on the internet from time to time. If people were talking about it, people referenced it. It got it got a response on gnome.org. That's where I actually encountered it first. I encountered the the response before I knew about the article. The article is entitled Flatpak is not the future. And interestingly, I don't disagree. I say that's interesting because if you've heard my show in the past or 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 in the present, which you are hearing right now, no, but you'd have had to hear the past. Uh, you you'd know that I'm actually quite fond of Flatpak, and that's true. And if you've been listening to my show for a, a longer time, then you'll know that I, for a long time, I, I didn't. I can't say longer because I didn't compare it to anything. Um, longer than a short time, then you'll know that prior to being a fan of Flatback, I was quite a fan of App Image. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking in the past tense as if though that has changed, and actually that has not changed. I am still a fan of App Image. I'm still a fan of Flatpak. I I have used fewer App Image. I have invested less time in App Image, and because I, I have actually used App Images lately, but I, I've invested less of my time in app images because the build process doesn't seem it, it hasn't proven to me to be kind of a, a a stable and consistent process. And that's not necessarily first of all, I say stable because I transitioned from app image version one to app image version two. I was I was there for when they switched over from their old model of being, I think but yeah, it was a dot ISO back then. And then they switched to SquashFS, I think, or maybe... No, it would have to be SquashFS. I was going to say UnionFS, but I, I think Squash, or both. I'm not sure, but they transitioned their, their sort of the, the base model, and and in so doing, the, the process of building the app image became a little bit different. And I, I just I kind of fell off a little bit. And around the same time that I was kind of falling off and floundering to build an, an app image that I just could not figure out how to build, I discovered flat packs were, um, were, were a lot more structured, I guess. And, and so I, I sort of invested more time and effort in flat packs and I haven't been sorry. I've, I've been really happy with the results, but, but that doesn't mean that I'm unhappy with app image. It simply means that I've gotten into a, a, a certain rhythm with flat hub, the, the, the sort of the one stop shop for, for, flat packs and they work really well they work well on slackware they work well on fedora they work well on rel so yeah i'm a fan of these structures these these systems and this blog post on ludocode l-u-d-o-c-o-d-e dot com slash blog slash flat pack dash is dash not dash the dash future this blog post has I, I I was able I, able to identify I guess let's say three primary concerns. One of those is the size of the downloads, like you know file size, download size I guess. Download size. One is um, I guess what you would say what you would call well oh I forgot drivers, uh, and then security, and then I. Th- I think there was one point at the end that I'm not remembering off the top of my head, and that was, oh yeah, okay, complexity. Okay. I I found some of these, I, I think there are a lot of issues being conflated here, and I don't know if the author would agree or not, but that's that that's kind of my read of this of this article. So, number one, the download size. This is true to to an extent. If you go and download KCalc, is the is the example given in this blog post by the author, you, you essentially download download 900 megabytes of a calculator because you have to you know from from scratch from nothing you have to download a bunch of KDE runtimes and probably a Qt um, package or two or not you know flat pack or whatever um, and and you've got, got all these base layers 
upon which other flat packs are supposed to build. And so that's that's 900 megabytes if you walk away right now with just the calculator. Now, I think that this is a little bit disingenuous, this, this critique, because the use case of Flatpak is not that you're going to go to Flathub and just download a calculator and then never use another Flatpak ever again in your life. Now, does it matter, because now I'm being disingenuous, does it matter if that's the use case if everyone doesn't know that's not the use case? For instance, you go to Flathub, you don't get a warning that says, don't just get download a calculator, you should download a bunch of other stuff to make it sort of all worth it. And that's kind of what I'm saying, is that generally speaking, when you sort of sign up for for Flatpak, you are admittedly, unknowingly, uh, possibly, signing up to use a bunch of Flatpaks. And, and the agreement is that you'll pay the 900 megabyte cost to get your base layer, your runtimes, but in return, you'll get a bunch of other applications that are super easy to install no matter what your distribution. So that's that that's a complex that's a complex issue in itself and there was a response to just specifically that portion of the uh, of of this issue on on a gnome uh blog and it it demonstrates pretty pretty well that there's not quite as much sort of duplicated effort or duplicated uh you know r- repetition within flat packs as one might one might think if one just sort of glanced at flatpak superficially you might think wow that is a lot for every single download but once you once you dig into the internals and find out about how it sort of doesn't duplicate libraries and so on then it becomes um it can it becomes considerably lighter a, a smaller footprint than you might think i will link to that response blog in the show notes it's a good read both of these are good reads but one is i think more tech uh, technically informed about this particular issue than certainly this blog post and and frankly myself i haven't really looked into it because um well at this point honestly um i have largely fallen prey to the excuse that this author critiques which i also actually am critical of myself but but it's this phrase disk space is cheap i I really hate those kinds of assumptions um there are two of them that i can think of off the top of my head one is disk space is cheap and the second one is everyone's online all the time those are just assumptions that sort of grate at my nerves when i hear them because the the disk space is cheap thing assumes that it's that, that the word cheap actually applies equally to everyone so what I might say, oh, that's cheap, someone else may well not say that, and they might be struggling uh, with with where to put all of their digital assets because they can't maybe afford another storage device or something like that. So disk space is cheap is not a good excuse to just pile a bunch of runtimes on your hard drive. Um, however, as I'm as I'm saying, for me, the di- disk space is cheap enough to not really worry about the the flat pack footprint. And and even I mean, saying that even I, I I've had flat packs on a Chromebook, and so and Chromebooks are not famous for having a lot of space on them. So I don't know. I'm I I am not experiencing the the size problem in the way that this article describes. But I want to emphasize that I understand the concern and that I certainly wouldn't, you know, I, I, it is something that we should, we should pay attention to. We should, we should keep an eye on that. But as this GNOME response article explains, it is being kept an eye on. Uh, we just don't necessarily, if you haven't looked into it, you may not realize it. Okay. The other, um, issue that this article has is with drivers and, um, I mean, there are other other issues as well. There are a couple here, a couple there, and and but but one of them is is drivers, and I have a feeling that there's so some some of the concerns in this article. It, it's not just in spite of the title, flat pack is not the future. It's actually about sort of the flat pack model or or the, the idea of of I guess alternate packaging schemes really. Because this article explicitly critiques Flatpak, AppImage, Snap, Docker, and Steam. Now, those are a lot of different different packaging methods to roll into one article under the title "Flatpak is not the future." So, 
Um, that I, I'm not too sure about sort of the clarity on, on this. And, and the driver issue appears to me to be a concern about more, more about Docker, I think. So I, I'm not really sure what the point was about the driver concern. And I will say that certainly I've, I've run, you know, a flat pack, a largely flat pack based system on Silver Blue, and I've not had any troubles with, with driver compatibility and, and, and so on. So I'm not I'm not too sure about sort of where that comes from, but it's something I wanted to note not only because like I say it, it kind of highlights the the lack of focus in the article, but it also highlights something that I want to come back to later about what might be the future. So anyway, that's drivers. There's a concern about security. Um and you know, I mean security is a as a whole thing that you have to go into and really discuss and look at from all angles and then there are payoffs and trade-offs and things like that. So critiques of security around Flatpak are are certainly interesting and important and I heard the same kind of critiques about app image. I imagine this article the, the author of this article probably has concerns about app image. The concern here though about Flatpaks is that Flatpaks are are sandboxed for partly for security. And yet, in order to use a flat pack on your system, you have to have little portals out into your actual hard drive, because otherwise you wouldn't ever be able to access a, a, a subsystem of your computer, like Pulse Audio, or like Pipewire, or a, a folder, like your downloads folder, and so on. So there's this kind of illusion of like, oh, it's, 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 sandbox it's a sandbox and yet there's a hole in the sandbox that nobody really talks about and the art the other uh, author of this article has concerns about that and kind of highlights that, that that yes it might be sandboxed but look here's this permission that you have to give the application to access this this and this so what's the point what where's the what's the benefit of of being sandboxed and then finally the the overall concern seems to be just general complexity and this i found to be the absolute least focused point of the article i I felt like the the concern was that just applications and and sort of the user space in general has just become too complex and we need to just kind of scale it back roll back a little bit and 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 make things just generally easier and i i think i get where the author is coming from here and i think that there's a place for that for that sort of for, for that path but i don't think it has to be the only path i mean i i i think and i i used to say i used to think that surely just uh, this wasn't a thought. This was like a well, obviously. But now I'm only thinking that most people believe that simpler is better. Um, I, I I feel like the majority of people believe that a simple solution is an elegant solution. I'm not so sure if that's true anymore. Um, but I used to think that. And and if that's not true anymore, then or or you know probably never true. But I, I do think that that's a fight worth worth waging. I think that's something that that we could all sort of stand up for for simple solutions. And and simple solution does not mean necessarily um, my solution or the traditional solution or the solution that was was around for 20 years and so it should still be good enough because it's simple compared to the new stuff. It, but it, it should be an adaptive... There needs to be a sliding scale for complexity, I think. And so, yes, the computers are becoming bigger, they're becoming better, they're becoming more complex. We, we are asking computers to do a lot more than we used to, whether it's just processing more da- d- data or whether it's doing cooler things with that data. We're asking or more and at the same time and faster. But so things are co- complex. Things are getting more complex. But I, I, I don't know that there's necessarily a way to just hold that back and just say, well, no, we don't want it to be more complex. I mean, there is a way. And, and many of us, dear listener, we implement that. We, we run maybe a system without X installed or Wayland or whatever it is now. Uh, we, we we use a a minimalist desktop like or window manager even uh like fluxbox or whatever your choice is i3 or whatever you use um we we use we don't bother with a file manager we use um rxvt well urxvt instead of 
console or, or whatever. So we, we have these little things that we do to simplify computing. At some point, when you want to interact with the rest of the world, sometimes you, you, you the, the complexity is just sort of a necessity. How's that for a motivational poster? Don't, don't, don't quote me on that ever. Complexity is a necessity. I don't like that one. But anyway, it's, it's nevertheless, I think, kind of true. I, I was thinking about all of this, the response article that I read and the original article. Here are some thoughts about Flatpak and even App Image. Not about Snap. Not about Docker, or I think the author probably meant containers. I don't think the author actually meant Docker, because I don't see what the difference would be between Docker and LXC and Podman, for instance. I'm, I'm assuming the author meant those three things, or whatever other container runtimes there are. And it's certainly not about Steam. Here, here are some thoughts. First of all, not all developers are Linux initiates, meaning that there are applications out there that are being developed today that you need to do your job at work, or you want to keep in touch with your family and friends, or you just want because why not? And those applications are not going to get to your Linux desktop if the Linux desktop does not provide a clear, consistent, and singular target for the outside world, where where the inside world are, are consists of us Linux users. There are people out there developing software that could be on our desktops right now for one reason or another, but they're not. And the reason that they're not is, I mean, aside from disinterest in, you know, and in, in perception that the market isn't there for their app, um, the other reason is that when they type into the internet search engine that they use and say, how do package Linux for, they get back 33 different ways, th 33 different packaging formats that they would need to target in order to hit the Linux market. And and then there's like eight more of the same packaging formats, but there are little minor tweaks based on which distribution that, that, that also uses that packaging format that you're targeting. There's just, there's no way, right? Now, traditionally, as we, as we know, the answer to that has been, well, the, the, the developer should never be packaging their own application. They should just be publishing source code and that's all they should ever worry about. Why? Because the distribution, the Linux distributions, are going to package that software for them. Okay, well, as I've said before, this was probably a very realistic goal back in 1996, when all of the open source software in the world could fit onto one CD-ROM, or one zip drive, or jazz drive, or whatever it is back then. I'm probably being hyperbolic there, but, I mean, honestly, there there just, there, there was not as much open source software in 1996, or 8, or 2001, 2005, as there is today. So today, the idea that a distribution, the, the package maintainers of a distribution's software repository could possibly go out and find all of the open source software that their users might want to use and package it up in a safe and reliable and and regularly updated way, it's just not realistic. And I think we basically need to get over that. And I know Debian, I mean, they do an amazing job. Like, they have a staggering number of packages, and yet they don't have it all. So we need to get over this idea that the, the software distributions are just going to be able to, the, the Linux distros are going to be able to find all the software and, and maintain a package for them. It's just not going to happen. And you might, you might think, well, th that's not a problem. We just, the, that, that's, the solution is more packagers. If we don't, if, if people, if we don't have enough people to package up all the software now, let's just get more packagers. And well, I mean, good luck finding enough people who, you know, and building a trust system and managing that so that literally all software can be packaged and distributed by every single distribution, good luck. It's not going to happen. Okay. So, I mean, and maybe, it, it, sure, it could happen. Let's take the opposite tact. It could happen. We find all the people, we build a strong, solid trust system where there's, you know, reputations and, and digital signing and things like that. And, and severe consequences if you violate that trust and so on. Yes, that could all happen, and we would it would be great. It would be a participatory culture that would be finding all of the software, and maybe there'd be a method for just any old programmer to 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 just they they they, they do their release build, 
and it, it automatically pings all of the different distributions and says, hey, I just published some open source software, come and get it. Sure, it could work, but I'm just, I'm proposing that that doesn't seem to be the trajectory that we're on. Furthermore, Flatpak offers a singular package format. This is a big deal. This has not been the case for, for many, many, many years in Linux. This is a singular packaging format, potentially, that, that installs on lots of different distributions. That this cannot be understated, the importance of this. I mean, I've already kind of said it, that this is the singular target for all of the developers on the outside world, right? But it's also a singular packaging format for all of the Linux distributions on the inside world, us users. If you adopt Flatpak or AppImage, you don't have to worry, in theory, about whether an, uh, some application has been packaged for your distribution. It is there. If, if it exists as a Flatpak or app image, then you have it. Yes, it has been packaged for you because Flatpak will run on your system. That's, again, a huge deal, and it's been something that the Linux community has kind of not been pursuing for 20 years and probably should have been pursuing it. So... This is a good, this is a big feature. Okay, and then further, there's uh, sandboxing for security. And yes, it's not perfect. Yes, there's got to be portals and little holes poked in the in the sandbox in order to get to certain um, certain information. But the sandboxing also has this other nice feature, which is autonomy. So you can have GIMP 3 and GIMP 2.10 installed on your system at the same time if you need that. It's portable as well. Again, I don't like people who say that disk space is cheap. I don't, well, I, I, I'm sure the person is very nice, but I don't like it when people say that disk space is cheap, and I don't like it when people say that everyone's online all the time, because I've worked in schools where I haven't been online all the time, or I've been online, but the site I need to get to in order to download the Arduino uh, IDE is, for whatever reason, blocked. For no good reason, but it is blocked by the stupid school IT and they don't respond to trouble ticket to um, service tickets, so it it is very nice to be able to have a package of a thing of of something. Maybe it's GIMP, maybe it's Arduino. I don't know. Whatever it is, I like to have that thing on a thumb drive that I can then sneaker net around to all of the computers that I need to install it onto, and. Flatpak and AppImage both make that possible. Those are all really important and significant reasons, I think, to 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 pursue this idea of of contained apps. Whatever whatever angle you want to look at that from, whether it's the sandbox angle or the portability angle or the autonomous angle or just the convenience of, of the of it being a package that anyone can use. Mm -hmm. However you want to look at it doesn't really matter to me. Point is, I think that this is a superior method, a more flexible method, than the software repository. Believe me, I love a software repository. I think it's a great model. I, I, I absolutely love the freedom that software repositories provide, but we need to learn when, where those weaknesses are. And, and sometimes not having access to that repository is not a good thing. Sometimes not having access to a repository that has the package that you want is a problem because you're running Fedora and the repository is serving Debian deb files. There, there's got to be a way. We're, we're smart people. We live in the future. This is modern technology. There's got to be a way to solve this issue and, and have it not be a problem. So in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't, I don't see brokenness here. I just see a bunch of different options that we have available to us. And I think we should maximize the usefulness of each option. And look, I don't want to fall back on it's great to have choice for every single thing that I talk about. But, I mean, that's that's a big part of it, honestly. That, that for me, is, is one of the major features of open source. I've said that before, so I won't dwell on this. But I do like having the choice in all of these things. Now, some people say things like, well, yeah, but, you know, Flatpak... It, people are starting to package up flat packs and and not just not play nice with Linux distributions. Not not you know, instead of doing an, a deb and an RPM, they just do a flat pack and call it a day. And I say to that, yes, that's what we want. That's the point. Like it, I think I think honestly, more often than not, the choice isn't well. You can have a a flat pack 
for an RPM for Fedora, an RPM for RHEL, an RPM for CentOS, an RPM for OpenSUSE, an RPM for Magia, an RPM for Open Mandriva, a Deb for Ubuntu, a Deb for Debian, a Deb for Elementary, a Deb for Linux Mint, um, also an AUR package, a Slackware package, a, um, I don't know, whatever the PKG thing is, uh, and so on. I think the choice is you can have a flat pack or you can have nothing. And I would much rather have the flat pack. Thanks. Actually, and sorry, I didn't actually mean to keep going on about this, but what are we even talking about? Like, it's not unreasonable to just, to, to want a single packaging format for an operating system. If you search the internet how to make a Mac OS package or application or whatever they would call it, or a Windows pack ex- executable, you will you won't get that many answers. You'll there there's a way to do that, and unfortunately on those on those systems that's your only choice. Not not strictly speaking, there's always a way to get something on there, but in terms of like sort of mass market, you're a developer. You've heard from people that you really should be targeting such and such a platform. Well, there you go. Write an insys installer script for your, your your thing, put it into a folder, and you're done. Do whatever you have to do on Mac OS, and then you're done. Same thing should be for Linux. It should be write this YAML file, run it through the Flatpak builder application, you're done. And and that shouldn't ever be something that the that the developer really has to figure out more than just sort of the intro documentation for the format. They should be able to enter that stuff into their continuous integration, continuous delivery system, and those things get auto-built when they release, uh, a, when they when they do a build for their release. It should be that simple. It needs to be that simple. We cannot keep telling people to build five different RPMs, five different DEBs, and then five other optional, you know, other packages to pick up some of the the, the spare distributions and, and avoid the, the nerd rage that they'll receive in the comments, how dare they forget such and such a distribution. So Flatpak isn't the future, but I don't think that Flatpak developers would say it was the future either, at least not in its current state. No one thinks that this is the way things are going to be. I think we're moving towards something different, and I don't know if that's if that's silver blue or what what's the open source one called micro os that i still haven't tried and keep meaning to try but but i'm all for a smarter operating system and an easier operating system to target i think i think that's a, a benefit and i think that's the direction we want to move toward i don't think that we should be scared about complex solutions because we're faced with complex problems computers are getting more complex because the world is a more complex place computationally we have we have more and more data we have more sources of input we have more things that are integrating computers into them and there's just we we can't just keep that quote unquote simple and frankly i'm not sure that there wouldn't have been a time where someone would have looked at rpm or deb and said well why would you make it that complex? Like, why not just just tar up, you, you do a do a compile and then tar the result and then send it to the clients and have them untar it onto their file system? Like, what what could be simpler than that? So complexity is a it, it's it's a danger. We don't want to get over complex ever, but we have to recognize that complexity is a thing that happens in the world. The more you develop a system, the, the more complex it becomes. We have to respond to that. A flat pack. App image, it's a, I think it's a valid response. We just have to keep hacking on it and make it even better. Let's go get some coffee. has been obtained and now for some listener feedback from hacker defo he says on a few of the older episodes you were pondering about open source and increasing involvement of monopolistic companies with it and those talks were intelligent and thought-provoking for sure well thank you hacker defo uh he continues to say my unlearned opinion on this subject is desktops as we have come as we have come to know it 
are dying and an endangered, endangered species. Desktop applications and ways in which we have been interacting with them are on the verge of obscurity, too. Desktop systems and most applications work perfectly fine without always-on internet connection, but that's not the future, I'm afraid. Back in old times, there was something called a mainframe, one giant monolithic computer with consoles that allowed users to interact with it. Then came the era of personal computers, and we are all familiar with. But now we are steadily progressing towards the mainframe kind of era. Yeah, era. Uh, How? A bunch of computers somewhere in a data center are today's mainframes, and the fancy name for them is the cloud. And advances in internet connectivity have has allowed our computing devices to be reduced to the consoles of yesteryear. Let me pause there. I feel like there are two... Does anyone else feel like this? Like there are two sort of like realities or two worlds happening here? Like there's... I keep hearing and have been hearing for at least 10 years that the desktop was dead and that personal computing is, is a thing of of the past and that everyone, you know, that, that we're all going to be, uh, jacked into the, the mainframe. And, and yet I, I just don't see that actually happening. Like not really. And, and if it is happening, I feel like it's an option. It's a choice. Now, is it happening at the workplace? Yeah, maybe. And, and frankly, I'm not sure, so sure that I disagree with it at the workplace. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how much, sort of choice in a workplace there needs to be you're you're at least me i'm i'm there for for work i i do i do the thing that they pay me to do and so if i have to jack into their mainframe in order to do that that's fine i don't i don't mind like in fact i'd i'd frankly prefer that i i don't want to have work stuff on my personal computer or at all interacting with my real life work stuff can just stay at work of course i say that and and nothing could be farther from the truth my work is open source and so i actually there's there's no separation but at one time in my life there was a strong separation and and that separation is welcome but on personal computing i i just i'm not seeing that still and maybe maybe it's because I live in a bubble of of just my own perfect little constructed Slackware world where all of my applications are local, and I don't interact with the internet on a daily basis. Well, I do on a daily basis for work, but in real life, I have quite an enjoyable time not on the internet and and just having my my Wi-Fi turned off on my my laptop because I don't need it. So I don't know. I feel like I feel like there's this there's this story about how the desktop is dying and yet either the resistance right now is very very strong or that story is being overhyped and I legitimately don't know which which it is but and I'm I'm all up I'm I'm up for assuming the worst and you know just trying to stay strong and try to you know, keep those applications local I'm all for that Honestly, I, I don't mind saying that, you know, assuming that the story isn't being overhyped, that it's actually true, that, that the desktop is under threat and that everything's going to be moved to the cloud, that's fine. If we want to make that assumption and, and encourage people to continue to do local application development, I'm perfectly happy with that. But at the same time, I, I do see that there's a place for this for this mythical mainframe because, um, quite honestly, there you know, sometimes that just that makes sense. Um, whether or not it makes sense in the, in, in the way that, you know, I don't know, Microsoft wants it to happen or, or Apple wants it to happen, I would highly, highly doubt. But if, if there's distributed, if the data is distributed, if, if, if you're using open source technology, I'd, I'd feel pretty comfortable with that, like I say, at work, potentially. And, and maybe even some, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not feeling the threat in, in a lot of different ways. But that, that said, like, like many times when I say I don't mind something, I'm, it's also under the assumption that I get to keep what I have right now. So, and I guess, I guess what he is saying in this email is that the threat is that you don't get to keep what you've got. But see, and then again, there, there again, I don't see that happening. Like, I just don't. Like, if I go and look for a Linux application, I find a local application where my data is stored locally. I don't have to sign into any service to access it. Is that different on other operating systems? Is that not what you experience elsewhere? I don't know. I don't know enough about this, honestly. So, th- this is an interesting email, but I, I, I don't have, um, 
I don't have the context, I don't think, in real life. Anyway, um, he says a couple of other things. Uh, he says, this is the reason why big monopolistic companies don't care that much about software code. Um, and it's, yeah, it's the service angle that matters to them. He points out that Microsoft doesn't seem to really even care about Windows. See, again, and I kind of question that, like, is that... Is that true? I don't. I don't see that. They, didn't they just release Windows 11 like yesterday? I mean, th- not yesterday, but you know, very, very recently. So I, I just, I don't, I don't. I mean, and if if Microsoft didn't care about Windows, then surely we would be seeing the Windows market share drop severely. So I'm just not. I'm not. I'm not getting this picture of of the world from where I sit. And that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I'm not feeling the same pressure. However. Hacker Defo poses interesting questions here at the end. Maybe I should start doing this. Why is why is Hacker Defo posing <laughs> posing questions to my listeners? I should be qu- posing questions to my listeners. Anyway, I encourage you, dear listener, to uh, interact with this question. So there's he says Chromium is an open source browser developed by Google. How much market share does it have? Something like 0.05%, and yet the market share of the proprietary Chrome browser is about 65%, let's say. Why? The second question. A friend of mine was looking for an open source text editor, so he goes to the website of Visual Studio Code, VS Code, downloaded it, and happily started using it, thinking VS Code is an open source code editor from an open source friendly company called Microsoft. Was he right? Is he really running an open source text editor? Those are the two questions Hacker Defo has for you, dear listener. I don't know why he's on my show. I guess he's because he emailed and I read emails on my show. If you want me to ask you more questions to to encourage engagement, let me know. That's a third question. So one, why is Chromium less popular than Chrome? Two, why is, is VS Code really open source? Well, I mean, that's isn't that objectively provable? Couldn't we just go to the GitHub page and look. Uh, and then three, um, should Klaatu ask more questions on episodes? Yeah, I don't know. Those are those are questions from Hacker Defo. Now, I might as well sneak this in here because I'm out of listener feedback, but this is actually a callback to old listener feedback about uh, alternate version control systems compared to, to Git specifically. And from this feedback, I learned that BitKeeper is now open source, which is kind of strange in a way because BitKeeper is the origin of Git. Git exists because BitKeeper um, failed, in a way, the community. So it is now distributed under an Apache license, so quite a permissive license, actually. Although some, apparently there are some components that have their own licenses, probably things like, you know, I don't know, Zlib or... Something like that. May as well give it a try. Okay, so BitKeeper I've just installed really from source. Uh, I, I hated the install uh, process. It's really, really um, bad. If you if you try it, you you compile it and then you make an image and then you run the image to or the executable to do the actual install and it just copies files I guess from it somewhere else. I, I it's it's a really really weird way to install. Did not enjoy that at all. So, I mean, it's easy to compile, it just, it compiled no problem, but the install, like the actual install method just seemed very, very strange to me. I did not particularly care for it. Alright, so I'm gonna make a new BitKeeper package, is what they call it. They don't call it, I guess, a repository, they call it a package. So, BK setup, S-E-T-U-P, space, so BK space, setup, space, my project gives me a bunch of warnings about not having a fully qualified don- uh, host name for this machine. It's okay. This is just a little throwaway test environment. I don't care. But it, it it has warned me about that not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times. So I do not have a fully qualified host name for this machine. It's okay. So now I'm going to change directory into my project and do an ls-a. There are two folders here. One is BitKeeper and one is .bk. In BitKeeper, actually, you know what? Let me do an ls-la. Yeah, okay. They're they're independent folders. So in BitKeeper, there are a couple of different folders. One is called Deleted. The other is Etsy. The other is not readable to me because of the highlighting in this terminal. And then the other is TMP. How do I turn off? Yeah, let me do this real quick. 
there we go, readers. That, that's what the one that wasn't readable to me is, is readers. Uh, in the .bk folder, there's another BitKeeper uh, folder with deleted Etsy and Timp in it, and an SCCS folder, change set comma one, change set comma two, change set comma S. That looks vaguely like RCS, doesn't it? With a comma notation? That's interesting. Okay, so that's what we got. We got a, a folder called BitKeeper. We got a hidden folder dot, dot, dot BK, and the whole world is in front of us. So we can do something like, I don't know, echo foo into a file called test dot, uh, or f- file dot txt. Let's do that. All right. Now, if I do a BK dash capital U, lowercase c, no. How about lowercase uc? None of those things, apparently. I've been lied to. Ah, here we go. BK dash capital U lowercase cx. Didn't really tell me anything that I didn't already know, which is that I have a file called file.txt. I'm assuming what that's telling me is that it has an untracked file in it. So dash capital U is to limit the set of files passed to the command. Dash C is list changed files. Okay, so that's why UC didn't return anything because it didn't see a new file as a changed file. And then dash UX is list files that have no revision control applied to them yet. So that's those are the those are the commands. So let, let me look at what BK status gives me. Um, that tells me that the repository has no parent. Uh, it gives me the version of BK. It having no parent is a reference to the fact that it has not been cloned from anything else. So there is no remote assigned to this repository. If you clone another repository, then your new repository, your your new repository, your clone, knows that its parent is whatever you've cloned. So for instance, in fact, I could just, well, I won't do that now because it's empty, but maybe I'll do it later. Okay, so um, I'm going to add, I'm going to bk add file.txt. I don't think that's right. Oh, it is right. Okay, cool. File.txt revision 1.1 plus 1 minus 0 equals 1. So that's telling me that I have made you know, one change, I guess, to a file that was not re- re- um, was not under revision control. And file.txt 1.1 has been incremented to 1.2, I guess. And by the way, um, I don't have a fully qualified host name for this machine. Just, just thought I'd let you know, because BK let me know. So uh, wh- now that I've added, I can probably do a BK commit dash M? No, dash Y for comment. Dash Y comment... So dash y quote added my first file to bk close quote return and it gives me a change set revision 1.2 colon plus one so I've I've changed one thing about this repository this package now and by the way I've failed to set a fully qualified host name on this machine just just in case you were wondering because it has told me yet again okay so that's that's the the commit process that's kind of done. I've added and I've committed, so that's very familiar to me. The, those Both of those things feel very familiar from, from Git. What if I do bk log change set 1.2 uh, is the, the one that I just did. It's change set 1.2 and it has added my first file to bk. Change set 1.1 is the initial repository created and file.txt 1.1 is I don't exactly know how that fits into this. I guess it's just giving me stats on that particular file. Well, let me change that file. So let's do echo. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Even better. Let's just do an ls-l of user bin and pipe that into file.txt. And now if I do bk-u lowercase c for changed, it tells me file.txt has changed. doesn't tell me how much it's changed, it's just it's told me that it has changed. Okay, so under git and, and a couple of other systems, I would I would imagine that I would do a git, a, or a, in this case, bk add file.txt tells me that the file sccs slash s.file.txt already exists. It doesn't say anything went wrong, it just tell, tells me that something exists, and I don't know if that matters or if that's just like a warning or, or what. 
So I guess I'll do a bk commit dash y changed file close quote and it tells me nothing to commit. So obviously the add action actually did fail and I'm supposed to be doing something else in order to update a file or, or to make a change again to a file that already exists. And the way that you do that, turns out, in in, in uh, BK, BitKeeper, is something called a check-in action. So the command is CI, so BK space CI check-in, just similar to, you know, uh, subversion or SVN, where it's check-out CO, this is check-in CI. I, I mean, I think subversion has a check-in CI as well. But BK has CI check-in, that you do to a file that 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 you're not adding to the package, you're just updating that file. So I'm going to just do bkci, bk space ci, and that gives me a prompt. It tells me that um, I'm ending, I can end a comment with a dot on its on, on its own line. So I'll just say changed file with, yeah, just changed file, I guess, and return, and then a dot on its own line tells me that the file has now been incremented. Well, there, it's been added, so plus 10, one, 1078, or 1078, minus 1, equals 1078. The file, I mean, not by my math, but whatever. Um, the file.txt 1.2 has been incremented to 1.3. If I do a BK, what was it, changes? Um, I get that, I, I don't get a version 1.3 listed there, so there must be some subtlety that I'm missing uh, on what a change is versus what a log is, but the bk space log shows me. Oh no, that doesn't show me the 1.3 as well. Okay, because because I haven't committed it yet. So now bk commit dash y quote updated file seems to have worked. Now I'm going to do a bk log, and I I do see the new revision at the top of my log. And I'm assuming I would get the same kind of output bk changes. Yeah, I get the same output. So changes in log must be like literally the same command. So the workflow is a little bit different there, right? In git, it's it's pretty much always just add commit, add commit, add commit, which is nice. I like that. It simplified something that was maybe arguably a little bit over complex. bk still has it, what does make sense admittedly like when you add a file it's because you are adding that file that was not there before to your package repository um and then when you have changed the file then you are just you're, you're checking it in with your changes applied and when you're ready to proceed from there you'll you'll commit it now you do also pull and push with bk and like i said earlier if if you go back a little bit and look at the clone command. So if I do a bk clone my project, that's the the folder that I created, and then I'll call it um, my remote. How about that? Then it it creates the a new a new package under the file of uh, under the name of my remote. And then I could go into, for instance, my remote, and I could list all contents of slash opt that's boring how about slash etsy and pipe that into file.txt i could do a bk check in of file.txt and then i could do a oh the entire repository is locked by resync directory usually the resync directory indicates a push pull in progress use bk resolve bk abort as appropriate um let's do a bk resolve i guess this is exciting that doesn't feel like that got resolved yeah that doesn't really feel like it got resolved at all how about if i do a bk abort there's there is no resync directory it claims but then when i try to commit or check in rather it it states that it's locked again uh bk what was it parent or bk yeah, BK parent is push pull parent is um, my project. So it knows that its parent is my project. Um, so I think what's going on here is that I'm trying to treat the child as the parent. So I'm going to back up. I'm going to go into my project instead. I'm going to update file with, uh, let's just cat slash etsy file systems into file.txt. Actually, you know what? Let's just make a new file in entirely. We'll call it... F um, that actually, that would have been a great one for a file called file.txt. Well, we'll call this one etsy.txt. So now I've got a new file here. So if I can do a bk, what is it, add for etsy.txt, 
and then I can do a bk commit dash y all the file systems in etsy.txt and now that file exists. The revision has been bumped up to 1.4 even though it's the, this is the first version of the file the the package revision of of the repository of the repo package is what they call repo apparently um, that that's been bumped up to 1.4. Okay so now the parent has a new file that the child the clone does not have so I'm gonna back up and go back out to my remote should have probably called it my child or something. Actually, let's try that. Let's move my remote to my child. And now we'll go into my child. And I'm going to do BK parent just to try to see who owns this thing. And it does identify my project as the parent. And so now I should be able to do a git pull. And no, it doesn't want me to do that. Um, what if I do a git pull from parent? No, it doesn't want me to do that. BK pull dot dot slash my project. No, it doesn't want me to. Okay, so there's something obviously wrong with my clone. I'm going to very naively just get rid of it. And I'm going to try it one more time real quick. BK clone my, my project into my other child. And now, yeah, it doesn't look right. It looks like the repository is left locked, it says. It is not telling me how to resolve that, and it's little at, at if you go to bitkeeper.org slash test drive, they demonstrate this concept by, by the, the, first they clone something from the internet, and then they clone their clone to a new place, and, and, and so it marks its parent, and then they're able to pull from that. And then there's no mention of a file lock or or anything that you're supposed to do before doing a clone. Like there's no you know sort of like there's no checkout or you know check in check out kind of release of permissions or anything like that. So I'm not sure why it's not working. I'm I'm gonna assume that it's something that I'm doing. I'm probably just missing something either very obvious or something very subtle that you know, that that for whatever reason I don't know. I don't know why that wouldn't be working actually. It really feels like it should be working. But anyway, there's no no way I'm going to be able to solve it right now, I don't think. So, that was BK. It feels, you know, just familiar enough to think that you you've really got it. Like th this is this is easy. I've got this. And then something like that happens <laughs> and you and you think, "Oh, oh, I forgot. I don't know anything about this system." That's right. This isn't actually Git. It just feels a lot like Git for uh, much of the time that you're using it. Overall, I, I don't. This is kind of what I expected from Bitkeeper. Um, I don't mean that in a negative way. This is what I expected from you. I'm, I'm not disappointed because I didn't even expect. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, this is kind of what I thought Bitkeeper would end up being. It's it, it, eerily familiar to Git, but just different enough to make me think, why don't I just go back to Git? And, and that, I mean, obviously, that's what I am going to do. I, it's really neat, though, to to experience BitKeeper. I don't know how much it changed, you know, from the early days of Linux uh, kernel hosting, but it is cool to be able to actually use the system that, that the kernel was managed with for, I guess, about three years. And, and I get to do it while staying true to the open source ethos. There's 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 no closed source happening here. It's it's open now, so you can have the the experience without any of the the, the guilt. And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it's really cool to see where Git came from. Um, I I have again just that bias towards Git, so it's super easy for me to just say, wow, Git is so much easier. It's got just smoothed out those rough edges and so on. But I think I'm getting the feeling that if well honestly none of the 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 version control systems that I've tried so far have I walked away from thinking I never want to use that again other than subversion like subversion I I was I'm just not that fond of honestly I just I didn't I don't I don't love the model RCS I mean in real life I don't think I would use it but I could see where it was coming from mercurial seemed really elegant git Love it. Fossil. Love it. There was, I think there's one more in there that I'm just not thinking of right now. Oh, CVS probably. Not, I don't remember what I thought of CVS. So that, that might be a, might be an exception. But I think it's just a fascinating process, r revision control. I think it's fascinating enough and, and complex enough. You know, you just know when you're doing it that you're doing something amazing. Something that you would never be able to sit down 
and figure out yourself either either the, the changes that you've made you know to a to a real file and we've all done it before we knew get uh, before we knew version control like we've all had i mean sometimes i still have to do it because someone will send me a file and then i'll tell them this looks really good i, I think i would change maybe that 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 first ha- half but but the rest of it looks good and so then they send me the second file with all the changes and then i think oh but wait no wait i i'd already started changing other parts of this file um okay well that's fine i'll just combine the two files you know so and and i mean on a good day it's line delimited and you can just pipe it through diff and make a patch on other days you have to do it manually so we've we've done that and so you know how hard it is and the fact that You've got software managing that for you is just so cool. And then just to think of all the, the the code that has to go into it to make that possible is just really, it's almost humbling. It's so cool. So VK seems really fun. It seems like a really nice little system. Am I going to use it? Nope, not going to use it. Um, I mean, for one, it's just too much like Git. I might as well just use Git. And then, again, it's... You know, where would I? I mean, I'm sure there's. I'm sure it says right on the front page somewhere where you can go to to get free BK hosting, or maybe BK hosting is just really, really easy to to implement on on your own server. The they, they it it does have its own protocol, BK colon slash slash. So I don't know what it that does, but it's obviously something that you could, you know, like Git actually has its own protocol too, but no one really uses it. Everyone just uses Git through SSH. I don't know whether BK has an SSH interface or not, so maybe it's super easy to just throw on a on a, a folder on your server and then just SSH interact with it. I don't know. I didn't look into that. But either way, you know, Git being the the what is it, 800-pound gorilla, I mean, that's just it makes it so easy to default to Git, really. Um, so VK is interesting. I'm, I'm not going to use it, but I'm really, really glad to have experienced it in, in, in the small way that I've experienced it. I don't know. In the future, at some point, I'm going to try Darks and Pijul, P-I-J-U-L, and we'll see what those are like. Who knows? Maybe those will be really fun as well. Thanks for letting me know about them, uh, Hacker Defo. That was much appreciated. Did not know that BitKeeper was open source before a listener told me. So that's listener feedback, hard at work for for the benefit of all of us. Hey, wait a minute. You're a listener. Yeah, you. You're a listener. If if you have feedback for me, if you have listener feedback, feel free to send it to me. I have email, Mastodon, and I'm on Matrix as well. So that's I think I'm pretty much not Clatu on all of those things or, or Clatu. Well, either Clatu or not Clatu. It, it kind of depends. It's sort of a Schrodinger situation. Uh, so if you have something to say, don't don't hesitate. Let me know. Uh, feedback is always appreciated. Understand also, though, that this isn't like a call for feedback. You don't have to give me feedback if you have nothing to say. I am just inviting you, if you have something to say, n- don't hesitate to provide feedback. I'm always interested in what people have to say about the stuff that I talk about because I, I frequently either gain insight or a different perspective, or just have interesting thoughts inspired by by feedback, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
this point, you probably know just about as much about it as we do. 